When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. Welcome to another episode of How to Win 2024. I'm Jennifer Palmieri, and I'm here with my co-host, Claire McCaskill. For us, it's Wednesday, December 13th. We're recording this early to give our team some time off for the holidays, but for anyone listening to this, it's January 4th or later. Uh, Whenever it is and wherever you are, we are so glad that you are joining us today. With Iowa caucuses around the corner, like really, really soon, Donald Trump's dramatic lead in the polls has left the political world all but certain he's going to clinch GOP nomination. But if that's the case, who is going to be Veep? Who will get to be his running mate? We're going to go through the rumored candidates, which include media personalities along with politicians, and we'll tell you who we actually think stands a chance, but I know who my vote is for. My pick would be Julia Louis-Dreyfus because if you watched the series Veep, you realized she was an idiot. Her character, not her. She's amazing. Her character was an idiot. Her character always did the wrong thing for the wrong reasons and, frankly, was just nuts. And that would fit perfectly with the orange guy from the golf club. I mean, people often ask me what's more... uh What's more true to life, West Wing or Veep? And I'm sorry to tell everyone that it is more like Veep than it is like the West Wing, or at least these days. No disrespect to the Biden White House, of course. That's just all about the craziness on the other side. Um, But to help us unpack all of this is political strategist and founder of The Bulwark, uh, Sarah Longwell. So I'm not sure, actually, if Sarah considers herself a Republican anymore, if she calls herself a Republican. But if she does, she's definitely a never-Trump Republican. Uh, She's brilliant, so funny. And she's a person that I really lean on because Sarah is in, is doing basically constant focus groups with Trump voters. Um, so she really has detailed, nuanced, really great information on how these people are feeling about Trump, what they're, you know, what's underlying uh, his support. Um, and she's a great person to talk to about the uh, running mate. So before we talk about who... Uh, We're going to spend a little time on how. Now, let me preface this by saying Jen is going to talk a little bit about the normal process. (laughs) Totally, the normal process, the conventional process. Yeah, and so so really, this probably belongs in a different episode because we all know that Trump won't do normal. Uh, Trump will do some kind of bizarre, how do they look, pardon the expression, bullshit, but... um, I think it's important to get a backdrop of how typically a presidential campaign goes about selecting a vice president. And Jen has been uh, around that uh, more so than I have. Both of us have have been there at the moments that vice presidents were selected. And uh, I think it's important for you to know what normal looks like. So why don't you explain to folks, Jen, how a normal vet would look for potential VP candidates? It's incredibly involved. So in 2016, when I worked for Hillary, we started with a list. John Podesta ran the 
process for us. Um, you know, former White House chief of staff, current counselor to President Biden. And we had a list of, started off with a list of 39 possible nominees. I will share with the audience that Missouri Senator Claire McCaskill was one of the people on the list. You go from, we went from 39, which included everyone from, you know, senators to military leaders. Former Admiral Jim Savridis was part of it. The current UT president and um, Admiral McRaven, the head of the SEALs who got bin Laden, he was one of the people on the list. So I started off with a very big list to like, to think unconventionally about who it might be. Narrow it down to a field of 15 to 12 And that group then undergoes an extraordinary vetting process. I mean, it is brutal. All of your financial information, all of your health records, binders and binders and binders of information are collected on these candidates by a law firm. You you contract out to a law firm to run the, the vetting process. The candidates then go through brutal interviews, personal interviews, where just anything you can possibly imagine is asked to the people. It's a very uncomfortable situation. None of this is 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 fun. And then from that once people have passed, that's what you referred to as passed to the vet. This is where you're looking to see, is there anything that's actually a problem um, in their background? Or is there anything that could be considered as a problem? And think about if it did come out, how you might prepare to defend that person. The candidate then, you know, will go and do interviews. Hillary did personal interviews with, with a number of the potential running mates. Some of this information we made public just because, you know, you want the press, you got to feed the press something during this process to be interested in it or uh, understand that you're taking a you know a broad approach. You haven't just narrowed it down to a few. You want people to understand that this is a, a legit process. So we might share some of this information with the press. And then in the end, we came down to three candidates. <laughs> so it goes down to the last minute. You, we actually had signs made for everybody. And then you have to destroy them immediately, of course. But, and then uh, right, I guess, two days before we picked Tim Kaine, I was informed that it was Tim Kaine and given all of the briefing, the the vetting books (laughs) to say, okay, here's the guy. And I was like, oh my God, how are we supposed to tell this story? And so instead I grabbed a couple of former staff who had worked, who worked for us, who had worked for Tim, Lily Adams, um, and the late Tyrone Gale, uh, who had both worked for Tim, and they raved about him. I was like, okay, come here and tell me in 90 seconds why you love Tim Kaine so much, because we're going to go introduce him to the American public. So that's what a normal process looks like. So I'll tell my story. Uh, I was with Barack Obama in the days where he was making his selection. And I remember being on the campaign plan. First of all, I remember being in the car with him I believe we were in Kansas campaigning when he got a call from John Edwards. And I was not privy to the call, but I was sitting very close to the president in the car. This is back when he was a senator. And it was obvious to me that John Edwards was calling to try to be vice president. It wasn't a long conversation. You know, I worked for John during that time, or at least I was yeah. helping John was, during that time. The next time we talked, about it, I was actually in the plane, and it was down uh, to the wire, and we were discussing various candidates and who would be good and who would not be great. And there, a lot of the, the vetting had already occurred, and so there were finalists. And I will not tell, I will tell that it, it was a situation where at that moment, when Biden was selected, 
nobody knew economics was going to be the big thing. Nobody knew that Lehman Brothers was coming and we were going to have this big economic meltdown. And I think that Barack Obama chose Joe Biden because he was really strong on foreign policy. Uh, He really added to the ticket in terms of heft, in terms of his experience as chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee and all of his relationships around the globe with all of the world leaders. And I think that gave him the edge. So that's my story. The other thing I would say about uh, picking Tim Kaine is I think Hillary really wanted, you know, she had good people to lean on. Her her husband <laughs> and her former boss were both president of the United States um, to get their advice. And she really wanted a governing partner. You know, the president was like, think about it. Hopefully you will be seeing this person every day for the next eight years. Like, who do you really want at your side? And so after all of the, you know, after all the vetting and the, the focusing, I think that the, the, I think there's less focus than people might expect on the Democratic side on how does this help the ticket electorally? Because really running mates don't really help the ticket electorally. I think it's better to pick a, somebody that you really you know, that you you really connect with and might, might energize the ticket. Um, I think Gore was a great selection for Clinton in that way. It was sort of counterintuitive because the two of them were very similar in background, but like it like kind of doubled the power of Clinton to have Gore on the ticket. And so like, that's what Hillary was looking for. She was looking for somebody that was going to be a partner to her and like a good, and she knew could take the job as president. Um, and he's, fan- and you, you know, he's a good friend of yours. You love him too. He's fantastic. Yeah, no, listen, Tim Kaine is terrific. And let me just, say that the other thing I think we need to stress here is that there have been problems with vice presidential candidates that have arisen that that lose votes or that could potentially lose votes. So it's more about doing no harm than actually adding to the power of the ticket. I mean, like Palin, like when Geraldine Farrar, all of the problems about her husband's finances came out, that was a bump in the road that that campaign did not need. Um, obviously, close to my life was what happened to Tom Eagleton and the tragedy around that. Um, such a good, strong, wonderful man who really had his career disrupted because of vetting around his vice presidential selection. So that's why all these records are important. That's why the vetting's important. And that's probably why Trump won't do any of it because he doesn't get it and doesn't think any of it is very important because after all, nobody could be more important than he is. And he is the show, the only show, and he doesn't want anybody who's going to take away from his show. All right, we have to take a quick break. But when we come back, Sarah Longwell is joining us to break down who Trump might choose to be his running mate. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Today's news requires more facts, more context, and more analysis. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try MSNBC. Understand more. Welcome back. 
So, assuming the nightmare becomes true and Trump wins the GOP presidential nomination, as we all expect him to do, who will he choose as his running mate? He has said that he likes, quote, the concept of a woman on the ticket. Oh, my God. But has also recently floated the idea, or at least his wife did, of Tucker Carlson as his running mate. It's a lot. It's a lot. So anyway, let's bring in our guest, uh, Sarah Longwell, who is co-founder of The Bulwark and has experience vetting candidates for higher office, considering what voters think about candidates for higher office, and does weekly focus groups with GOP voters uh, so she knows what they're looking for. She's like, there are a few people in my life that I reach out to to be like, okay, what do you actually think on politics? Dan Pfeiffer, we had on recently. He's one of them. And Sarah is definitely one of them. Welcome. It's really great to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Good to be here. Okay, so everybody I meet that is in my circle, when I meet them, they always say, well, what are they thinking? You know, <laughs> they being right? Trump voters. But yeah, what How are they thinking? How could they possibly? What, yeah. Right, right. So <laughs> what are they thinking about um, Trump? And it, it, as it relates to a number two, do they even care? Yeah, you know what's interesting is, so the way that they say, what are they thinking is like to hurl a sense of, Indig- you know, indignation and how can this be and yeah. complexity. And that is how I started. How is this possible? How is it that Republican voters want Trump? And so I, the reason I started doing the focus groups is actually because I thought I was going to primary Trump. I had this like great idea back in, you know, 2018, we were going to get Larry Hogan or some Republican congressman to primary Trump. And that's how we were going to get back. Uh, and I quickly realized doing the focus groups that actually voters liked Trump just fine. Yeah. Uh, they and were looking for an alternative. They were not looking for an alternative, as I hoped. Is that the fundamental like flaw in what's happening now with this like fake sort of fantasy football version of a Republican primary? That people just don't want an alternative? Yeah, the, the, the gatekeepers and the people at the National Review and the donors, they want an alternative, right? And so uh, you can create an entire ecosystem of conversation around an alternative, these like second place undercard debates. So there's an illusion of a primary right now. But then you get an Ann Seltzer poll that has Trump over 50 percent in Iowa and you come back down to earth and you realize there's not actually a primary going on. This guy's going to walk away with it. And I'll tell you, just to set up. So I do the focus groups every week, sometimes multiple groups a week. And I have done this now for many, many years. Um, because You're like it's the re- most informed person in all of America on Trump voters. Well, I do do it across the political spectrum, but I really specialize from a strategic perspective. I want to beat Trump. And I specialize in trying to figure out how to persuade soft GOP voters and right-leaning independents to do something that goes against their tribe and vote for Democrats, which is hard for them. Uh, And so, you know, we are trying to build an anti-Trump coalition here. And that includes a lot of these center-right voters. And so I focus on how you persuade them. So I got to listen to them. I got to listen to swing voters. I got to understand Democrats and what they're pushing for. And I got to understand what Republican voters want. So I spent a lot of time listening to two-time Trump voters, especially people who don't And like right now, a lot of people want to move on from Trump. And a while back, you know, early on in 23, after the midterm elections that went poorly for Trump, there was a huge DeSantis curious contingent of the Republican Party. Uh, Then this is like bodes really poorly for DeSantis's long term career. And what happened was the more people saw of DeSantis, the less they liked him. And so as the field has winnowed and what we saw from the San Seltzer poll in Iowa, there's this pitched, right? In the in the fantasy side, there's this idea of, okay, if you consolidate, you get this one person who can run against Trump. I believe that too. I think it's important. I want it to be Nikki Haley. But we also have to reckon with the fact that the more consolidation there is, 
the more Trump rises in the polls uh, and the more like, right, the Ann Seltzer poll, now that there's been consolidation, what happened? Trump won up, went up eight points. DeSantis went up three. Nikki Haley stayed the same. And I think that's why talking about who his vice presidential choice is, is, uh, is, is, is not a bad, it's not too early because I think he's going to be the nominee. And who he picks is actually, I think, a pretty interesting question because Mike Pence, you understand why he chose Mike Pence in 2020. Yeah. Right. right. He needed an establishment candidate that people were going to be OK with because he was a huge wild card. But now the entire Republican Party is part of the MAGA establishment. And so there's a question of whether he could go crazier with a Tucker Carlson or a Carrie Lake, or there's a question of whether he could go semi-establishment. Uh, and I don't mean like I think Nikki Haley is a bridge too far because I think that one of the key criteria for Donald Trump is loyalty. He doesn't want anybody, when he decides he wants to overthrow democracy, he wants somebody who's going to be vaguely on board with that. Yeah. And one of the things in listening to all these voters, to the extent that they're watching the Republican primary debates at all, mm -hmm. one of the things they, we had a guy just in a two-time Trump voter group last week, he said, I'm watching the debates because I think it's an audition for who Trump's vice president's going to be. But also, I don't like any of them. Like, none of them. I don't think it should be any of these guys. They don't think, you know, I, I, for a long time, there was kind of a maybe DeSantis. Should, it should be Trump DeSantis. Like DeSantis, it's not his time yet. He's not ready. Yeah. Um, but he'd be, he'd make a good one. But that seems to have waned. Like people are just not into DeSantis anymore. And because Trump's attacking him, they think Trump doesn't like him. And who Trump likes is like the main thing that they care about. I do think if I had to pick where I think he would go, I think my dark horse selection would be somebody like Katie Britt from Alabama. Oh. Uh, and Explain who it, she is. So Katie Britt is the young senator from Alabama. Um, she actually ended up edging out like the Mo Brooks, like more MAGA candidates. So so Trump endorsed her ultimately, which was interesting for him to endorse her because right. she was she was the she was normie. And by the way, she was McConnell's pick. Yeah. And for Trump to agree with McConnell on anything is noteworthy. That's right. And I think the reason is so Trump has said about Katie Britt and her husband is a football player who I think was like a fifth round draft pick for the Chargers or something. I'm not a huge football person, but he is a football player. And Trump said when they came down to Mar-a-Lago to ask for his endorsement that they were out of central casting. And that's the kind of thing Trump says when he really likes somebody. He means they thinks they look the part, which for him, I think those are his big criteria, a loyalist and somebody who looks the part in a way that he thinks about it from a sort of telegenic television perspective. And he also, he sometimes he likes the normies that he pulls into MAGA world. He would much rather, I think Trump is always, he likes the people who bend the knee. He likes his J.D. Vances. He likes the people that he right. has taken and broken their establishment credentials and turned them into MAGA people. So she would be, I think, kind of in the exact sort of sweet spot for him. I think that people like Carrie Lake and Tucker Carlson, he doesn't like people who outshine him. Right. Too big and of stars. Too big of stars. What about Christy Nome? What, what does uh, Katie Britt have that Christy Nome doesn't have or vice versa? She's a football player husband, whereas Christy Nome has uh, allegations of an affair with Corey Lewandowski. <laughs> so I think... <laughs> oh, there you go. Well, he, she would fit better then. Maybe. I mean, yeah, it's not like he's looking for, you know, Mother I, Teresa out I there. I was going to say, uh, I mean, he's, he's the captain of the adultery team. <laughs> that's right. But I will say, Noam comes up in the focus group. So a lot no. of people, yeah. like, she I mean, comes she's up as... hard to make that happen. I mean, totally. I, I went to a Carrie Lake, Christy Nome event last fall in Arizona, and I was like... Wow. <laughs> Am I looking at the 2024 presidential ticket 
you know, and just in terms of their presentation, they're just good athletes. Both of them are like very talented in that way. I agree with that. She's in my top, I would say she's in my top three. I would say I would do Christy Nome, I would do Katie Britt. And then I do think, again, you talk about he likes the, what did you say about the, oh, the concept of a woman on the ticket? Yeah. I also think he likes the concept <laughs> of a black person on the ticket. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, I, I would have said Tim Scott. For a long time, I was on the Tim Scott's running for VP train. Yeah. He ran a really lousy yeah. Lousy primary campaign, and I think got exposed for not being particularly strong mm. out there. He does suck up to Trump. He is an evangelical. Uh, he does bring some things, but I'm not sure Trump watched him and thought. Trump did notably not bash him, though, so that was interesting to me. But I just, I don't think he has the stuff. But you know who does is a guy like Byron Donalds. Yeah, mm-hmm. I knew you were going to say that. Oh, uh, um, yeah. Explain who he is. So he's a he's not he's not the best. But you you would remember him from the from the fourteen rounds of Kevin McCarthy House voting. Uh, he like randomly got floated as an alternative pick early, and everyone's like, "Who is this person?" And Byron Donalds was is a black Republican from Florida who now like is in the mix in Congress. Like he is on TV. He is on. He'll go on CNN as like part of the political panel and defend Trump. So he has been trying to raise his profile. Uh, and I think he would be happy to jump on the ticket with Trump. And I think Trump's got his eye on him. So what about somebody like Elise Stefanik? You know, she recently kind of showed up in a way that I think Trump would like, right? Um, she went after the academics and frankly, they did such a bad job. They made her look good, which gave me a headache. Is she, would she be in the mix? I think she is in the mix. And I think you are exactly right that I think her star rose a little bit because part of the problem for Elise Stefanik, right? She's a, she went from being a moderate to a MAGA loyalist. Again, Trump likes that. He likes turning people, but she's also, she's still got her normie vibes. Um, (laughs) And, and like her normie vibes are like pretty kind of boring, basic normie vibes. But when she did her prosecutorial, thing. He likes that. I would just like to say, though, just on that topic, I know it's a side topic, this idea that she's accusing people of defending the indefensible, she defends the indefensible Every all day. the time. Oh my Every day. Day. Multiple day. times a day. Ugh. Elise Stefanik is my generation of Republican. We all thought we were going to make the Republican Party normal and mainstream again together. Uh, and instead, she lost her mind. She um, did lose her mind. And, you know, I I kind of noticed her early on because I try to pay attention to young women who I think have the capability of rising and sometimes rising quickly. And she had it. And, and then she just she completely went bonkers. It's just bizarre to me that it's always a surprise to me when someone has high intelligence. I mean, she's like in the Holly deal. You Mm -hmm. know, I mean, Josh Holly and Ted Cruz, these guys who go to these Ivy League schools and are really smart, and then they buy into all of this nonsense. It's just hard to figure out. Yeah, she's a massive disappointment. And it is one of the grosser, more craven displays that I've ever seen. But he Um, loves gross and craven, doesn't he? He does. And speaking of gross and craven, I do want to throw out Nancy Mace also. Oh, good one. Good one. To me, there's nothing worse than the people who like tried to build, you know, that they were normal at one point and they were trying to be normal and they've completely done personality transplants in order to fit this moment. And her like weird A thing and the way she, all her, her glammed up, you know, vibes, she is auditioning for the role now. To understand Nancy Mace, because she's a confounding person, you, if you put the lens on it, like she is in a constant audition for vice president, suddenly you're like, okay, I see why she's doing this. That does make sense. Yeah. 
It really does. You're right, Sarah. It really does. And, and the trips to Steve Bannon's basement to be part of the Bannon war room sitting next to Matt Gross. Gates. Like she does that too. I mean, she rose in a lot of people's consciousness when she began speaking out about the mistakes Republicans were making about reproductive freedom and about the Dobbs decision. So she started out like kind of going, oh, okay, well, here's someone who gets it a little bit like Nikki Haley did in her moments where she tried to say, I want to be compassionate about this. Meanwhile, she is, you know, all in favor of a six-week ban, (laughs) but Nancy Mace did that, and then she um, just went completely off the rails, and now that makes sense. I hadn't thought about her, but she has the look, doesn't she? She just totally has the look, and it's got, and, and more so now, right? Like, she, you know, it, 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 it's you're right that it has changed. Like, as a do the focus groups, Sarah, understand that Trump is picking people based on how you would cast a TV show in terms of uh, who he picks as opposed to people who are meritorious and strong and and smart. Yeah, I mean, I think that they, the focus groups, so one thing I hear in the focus groups a lot, they are sensitive to the dynamics too in a slightly different way, not just because he's doing it for TV, but they understand that they are accused of being racist. And so like you will hear voters say things like, well, I hope he picks, you know, Tim Scott. Like, let them call us racist then. Yeah. Uh, or he should pick a woman because that would help us with women. Like, they do have sort of a... They don't a, understand a voters level. if they think that. <laughs> Yeah, they well, they do, but they have this sort of high level idea of that this person fulfills some kind of uh, political purpose, and so so they do have that, yeah. But they also don't know a lot of these people. Somebody needs to bring out the DEI police when they start talking that way. How dare they consider someone because they're black or a woman? How dare they? <laughs> now they have internalized these ideas plenty for sure. What about Vivek Ramaswamy, who's like, who, you know, runs around talking about how Trump is the greatest uh, president of this century, which, by the way, isn't that big of a statement because <laughs> it's only 2023. <laughs> so basically you're saying out of like W, Obama and Trump and Biden, you think Trump was the best. It's not that big of a statement. He's like a little mini me for Trump. What I've seen is Trump, again, like he likes to break people a little bit. The people who are these abject slobbering loyalists. I don't think he respects them, Mm. actually. Uh I think Vivek gets a place in the administration, uh, probably, but I don't think it's vice president. Also because he is, I mean, as I've been watching him, he's out of control. Like he, he, the extent to which he says bananas things that would get everybody in trouble and then like denies that he said them and it's on camera. Uh, And I just think Trump... He doesn't want someone, again, it goes back to the outshining him, having their own agenda. He knows when people are using him Mm. to elevate themselves. And I think Carrie Lake falls into this category. I even think like a Marjorie Taylor Greene kind of falls into this category. And I don't think they, he wants the loyalty, Mm -hmm. but he also wants them to sort of like stay in their lane, be in their place. So I have an important question for you, and it relates to the selection of vice president As you talk to all these focus groups and as you get inside the heads of the majority of the Republican Party and fully 25 to 35 percent of the country that has bought into all things Trump, what comes after him with these people? That's a good question. When he, let's hope he gets beat next year, and when he does, um, he's then going to be fairly old and 
clearly will not run again. What's next? So if I had to pick sort of two futures for the Republican Party, uh, two candidates that would define their future, it is on the like full essence of MAGA would be a Tucker Carlson. Like I think the Republican Party has demonstrated that they like people who are on TV. Tucker Carlson is setting the agenda for the base of the Republican Party on a from a policy standpoint in a lot of ways. And so I think that's one way it could go. The other way, though, is with one of these people who are very good at articulating the populist, make America great again, America first agenda, like J.D. Vance. And I I look at J.D. Vance and I really do see sort of where things are going. Again, he's he's craven. He moved from being a normie to being a MAGA populist. But he has a way of taking the through line, again, uh, somebody who was famous a little bit before because of Hillbilly Elegy, but his through line is about he is the, he's an advocate for the regular person, for the working man, the forgotten man from central Ohio. And he has this narrative that I think works in this Republican Party. And so I sort of think that's where it's going. Um, I don't think, I, one thing I know for sure, the voters say this, they say we're not going back. Like they, when you ask them about Nikki Haley or you ask them about Mike Pence, and they hate Mike Pence, they like Nikki okay. She's not a bad person, but they're like, she is a rhino establishment Republican, and we're not going back there. There's an America first agenda, and that's the direction we're going. And people say that. They articulate that. And even if you're like, tell me about like what is um, what are the policies? What are Trump's policies? They're always like, I love Trump's policies. What are they? You know, they don't have like a ton, but they'll say like America first policies, like immigration. And like trade. And what they mean is like stop hollowing out the sort of working class of Ohio, the the industrial belt. And so people have that. And so that's where I see J.D. Vance is potentially attractive. So that's what the guy who beat me, this is what he's been doing from day one, uh, Holly. Mm -hmm. The problem with Holly is he's not as likable as J.D. Vance. He's not as talented. You just don't want to, you know, you don't want to ever have to be having like a normal conversation with him because it just looks like it'd be too painful. Um, But he's, he's the same way. I mean, he showed up on a picket line. Yeah, right. For UAW. In Missouri, he showed up on the picket line, and which, of course, is hysterical because he's done every anti-labor thing you can imagine um, and said every anti-labor thing you can imagine at some point in his career. But he is doing the same thing. So what you're saying is there are people in the party now that see this is now going to be a Rand Paul slash J.D. Vance slash Ted Cruz slash Josh Hawley MAGA Act 2. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And, and I think, Great. you know, the voters the voters sniff out a certain kind of authenticity. Yeah. Um, and, and Holly doesn't have it, right? Like right. They think right. Holly's, a, Holly's a dork. Whereas I think J.D. Vance has made, is able to authentically speak to this from his hillbilly elegy days about right. the opioid crisis. I mean, fentanyl, you'd listen to voters from these Midwestern, they will talk about fentanyl all day oh, long. Yeah. And they connect it to immigration. They connect it to crime, to deaths in they their community. They definitely connect it to immigration. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. Who, who do you think would help Trump? You know, put, yeah. it, put it aside, like, who sh- if he was looking at that, who would help him electorally, who should he pick? I mean, I do think Katie Britt, like the real reason I think she's dark horse is I think she would do the most for him. I think yeah. having a young woman who's attractive, but not like in the Nancy Mace, Christy Gnome, like uh, glamour, I, I, glamour. Yeah, like it's a, right. she looks she's like not a, she's got quite a, 
She's girl next door. Girl next door. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah. And is from kind of a southern state, which is different than his New York appeal, even though not that he needs any help with the southern states. But I think he would it's like, like a the good idea. branding. pick. Yeah, right. Yeah. Good branding pick. Well, here's my prediction on that. I think she would be, I think it's, I, I hadn't thought of her, but I think you are really smart, which is not a surprise. She's super smart. But here's what's going to get in her way. She is liked and came from the institutional side of the Senate. She was, you know, the retiring senator's pick. She was McConnell's pick. Uh, she was, you know, never really identified as MAGA, but certainly has not rejected MAGA. But really, she is really liked, Sarah, by people who care about our institutions and is seen as somebody who is working in a really bipartisan way in the Senate. And I can see that slowing her down. Um, she better hope Mitch McConnell never says another nice word about her or her chances probably go up in smoke, right? I worry that one of the reasons I like it uh, politically is like come with my my own biases that like she is I hate her less than a lot of the other <laughs> right, people. Right. Um, however, right. however, she just did an op-ed endorsing Trump early in Alabama when they were down there for the debate. So she is a normish person who is out there early with a Trump endorsement. And imagine this: Trump is going to be under indictment, real indictment, like living in the courtroom during the period of time while we're running the general election. And I think he wants someone standing next to him that looks honest as the day is long. Yeah. Um, And that goes out and defends him in a way that people are like, especially and like and the establishment Republicans, like keeps them from turning on him while he's under indictment, like that she's out there fronting for him. He sort of wants that kind of person. I would think, like, if I was, I don't ever, I think the people, Chris LaCivita, if you're listening, uh, Susie Wiles, I think you're bad people for running Trump's campaign. But if I were running his campaign, I would make a pick like that. Well, good thing for us that he probably won't because he typically gets his back up and is not smart enough to realize that a little bit of normal will help him, especially now, because he thinks normal was his downfall, right? He thinks surrounding himself with the Bill Bars and the Mattises and the Kellys is what really caused him to lose his grip on power. So if his new deal is only the loyalists, that little thing in her background that shows that folks that don't like him, like her, may may in fact do her in. Could be. Or she's young enough that he feels like he can own her. Great. Yeah, that's true. That's <laughs> I don't true. know, though. You're, you're probably right. He probably picks one of the lunatics. He probably picks Nancy Mace. You know, that probably goes all day with that. There yeah. you go. Yeah. Great. All right. Thank you, Sarah. It was great Thanks, for Sarah. having you. We got to. Hey, listen, we got to have you back. Because, right? you know, like. Yeah, I think you know stuff that people who listen to this podcast need to know and understand because you you don't beat someone by not understanding who they are and why people support them. You beat them by understanding that and going right at it. And I think um, we need to have you back. I hope you will come back again soon. Uh, I will absolutely. And I'll just say for the record, I never helped anyone defeat you. My centrist, you. centrist Democrats are my jam. God love you. God love you. All right. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with much more. As always, if you have a question for us, you can send it to howtowinquestions at NBCUNI.com, or you can leave us a voicemail at 646-974-4194, and we might answer it on the pod. 
This show is produced by Vicki Vergolina, Jessica Schrecker, and Ivy Green. Bryson Barnes is the head of audio production. Our audio engineers are Bob Mallory and Katherine Anderson. Alicia Conley is the senior producer for this show. Aisha Turner is the executive producer for MSNBC Audio. And Rebecca Cutler is the senior vice president for content strategy at MSNBC. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts and follow the series. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com slash win.